we moved here to start over, and it's been hard. Wendy? Sometimes, if you don't move forward, you die. If we had just kept our heads down, Wendy. There's nothing we can do about that now. We're committed. Oh, yeah? We have made promises to our shareholders about this casino, and I don't think we want to annoy our shareholders. I want you to admit something. I want you to admit this is all about you. It has nothing to do with what is best for us. You have done nothing but fight me on this. I was trying to protect our family. That is such a tired, tired excuse. Let's pause there. A marriage is only as good as its trust. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dolby Institute and Soundworks podcast. We're focusing our conversations right now on episodic content since most of us are stuck at home and that's what we're experiencing now. I'm really happy to be talking today with the, uh, the team from Ozark. Uh, we have on the show today, Larry Benjamin. Hi, Larry. Hey, how's it going, Glenn? It's a pleasure. And Nick Forshager. Hi. Hi, Glenn. How are you doing? Good to see you. Larry is the re-recording mixer and Nick is the, uh, the sound supervisor for the show Ozark, uh, which is on Netflix. And I'm really glad to have you guys on the show today. Thanks for taking the time and talking to us about the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So if you've, if you've been listening to our show so far, you know that uh, we're coming to you remotely and we're recording our episode today using the Dolby On app, which is a new app that Dolby developed that is designed to uh, uh, capture and stream audio and, vid- and video with great uh, quality and clarity. So uh, we're grateful to, uh, to be able to use the Dolby On app to capture our conversation today. Guys, I'm really excited to talk with you about Ozark. I've loved this show since it really since it first started, and um, and especially with you guys, you guys have been on the show since the very beginning, right? Correct. So I'm kind of curious. Two questions: H- How is it that you guys uh, got involved with the show in the first place, and then has the approach to sound evolved over the course of the three seasons. I was an employee of the uh, post-production audio facility that was mixing the show, and uh, Nick had a relationship with the client, uh, Juanita Feeney, who requested us, or actually requested Nick, and then Nick and myself and my mix partner, Kevin Valentine, had a relationship on many shows and uh, put together a package. Nick, feel free to expound upon that. Like I said, Juanita had come to me about, we were trying to work together on Fargo, and it didn't quite work out. So then um, she kept me in mind. We had gotten along really well. And um, when this came along, she said, I think you'd kind of be perfect for this. Take a look at the script. And I read the script. And I was like, oh, I totally want to do this show. I knew it was going to be super cool. And and so, um, yeah, we, that's how I, you know, came upon, came on it. And it was funny because after that, they they were sitting in a meeting talking about sound. And they were like, they said, oh, we really want to get the guy if we can get somebody that does like Fargo or does like Breaking Bad, that would be perfect. And it's like, that's the guy I got. <laughs> He's right here. So that's how we came on the show. So I'm presuming that everybody who is tuning in has watched the show already. We're going to get into some spoilers on season three. So if you haven't watched, yeah, if you haven't watched Ozark, just my advice is hit pause now, go watch the show, come back. 
Um, the fun part about the show is that it's seemingly about a pretty normal nuclear family uh, who just, you know, who live in, in the, the Ozarks in Missouri and who happen to be money launderers for a Mexican drug cartel. So they, they tend to get in over their heads uh, pretty, pretty regularly and consistently uh, over the course of the show. And obviously that's, you know, that was that was kind of the conceit that was established from the very beginning of the, of the pilot episode through all three seasons. So, um, you know, just curious about the creative approach to the show and what's changed over the course of those three seasons. Sure. I, I think the sonic footprint has changed uh, as we have gone from the first season, you know, took place in the summer and the visual and auditory palette reflected that. And then, you know, season two, we got into the winter. And so uh, the sonic palette, I think, was reflective in the backgrounds. Nick can kind of speak to this, the, the ambiences that we established uh, for the locations uh, based on kind of the activity of the people and where we were, wildlife and nature based on those various uh, types, parts of the year. Yeah, like season one was really important to establish a big contrast between Marty's life in Chicago and this new world in the Ozarks, which was completely, you know, 180 degrees, the opposite direction of what Marty was like. So it was, you know, he was used to cities and restaurants and subways. And we really wanted to establish, you know, the, being in the country and, and being in that different world. Uh, season two, you know, they were basically always in the Ozarks. So all the locations had to kind of have... um its own kind of texture and element to it um, because we were there the whole time. So the strip club would have one sound and the Marty Bird house would have one sound and the Langmore compound would have a different sound. But when we got into season three, we had brought in obviously the Mexico element, the, the cartel element, and that had its own sound. And then um, uh, I think a big thing for this season was um, – the Langmore compound. Most of the Langmores have either died or moved on. And so Ruth is basically at the Langmore compound by herself. And so there's this loneliness and isolation. So early on in season one, it was much more like trailer park and there was motorcycles and dogs and activity around the, the, the compound. And this season it's much more stark and very lonely and isolating. So I think there's these shifts as the character shifts. Um, throughout the, the the arc that we we try to you know build upon as as we go along, yeah. And then uh, we further got into uh, life on the riverboat with the casinos and kind of built up that whole uh, palette of sounds. Uh, and it was interesting because there were different riverboats, uh, you know, casino boats. One was kind of a dated uh, one, and the sounds were of that era, you know, older slot machines, games, and things like that. Uh, and we built the palette from uh, a lot of very specific loop groups. For the you know gamers at the tables, lots of callouts and things like that, plus all the wonderful tasty bits that uh, Nick and crew provided in terms of the ambiences and backgrounds and machinery, and try to make it a very enveloping, uh, not bombastic, but but kind of a you know a rich environment. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the casino because I wanted to I wanted to dig into that a little bit because it's a major you know environment that a lot of the action uh, takes place in. Um, part of the part of the plot line for this season is that. Uh, uh, our, our main character is, is being shadowed by the FBI who actually take up residence at the casino and, and they're, they're dogging him pretty, pretty carefully. So we spend a lot of time at the casino. All right, good close. Yeah. Oh. I see red. Sorry, oh.
right, folks. Was that actually a constructed set or were the casino scenes shot on a location? They were actually a set. <laughs> yeah, they actually built out that casino uh, specifically. They had, there was a model of a, uh, a riverboat in Georgia that they kind of based it off of, uh, but then they built it out so that they had more control of it. So, so that, that presents you guys, I imagine, with some challenges because built sets tend, tend to be kind of boomy and a lot of plywood and, and not very, not very realistic. So tell me a little bit about the creation of the sound kind of envelope and the environment, uh, for that casino. Uh, the production sound on the series, uh, on the whole, is very, very well recorded. Uh, Flip Moreno does an amazing job. Very, uh, adept, skilled, uh, production sound mixer. And he and his crew always provide me with very rich, uh, full sounding, full frequency sounding uh, boom tracks and labs that have a lot of clarity without sounding tubby and overly boomy themselves. Uh, the labs are good for clarity. The boom is great for the richness and kind of the sonic footprint we want to really rely on. But obviously due to using multiple cameras, I can't always just, in any coverage, if I'm in a super wide shot, I can't just go to the boom. It'll be too far away. So there's always some recipe of boom and lav. Uh, and if it's strictly lav and the boom isn't usable, which is very rare, uh, I'll put in some kind of artificial reverb to make the lav not sound so sterile and kind of disembodied. We want to kind of put it in a space so a little bit of altiver goes a long way uh, for that and kind of blending different angle changes. Uh, so yes, it was a set. Most of the time, though, I didn't really have any issues, even on the kind of the long oneers that followed the FBI uh, agents along with our cast uh, throughout the river. But we always wanted to keep clarity, and, and sometimes they were talking about things that were very surreptitious and kind of hush hush. So we never really wanted to overmix it so that you know passerbys could hear what was being discussed. So I had to kind of keep it kind of sotto voce, but still intelligible. I was going to make it so at home you don't need to use your remote control uh, and act as a mixer at home. And you want to have it so that everything is intelligible. Uh, so, But I found a really good balance of boom and lav, depending on the location uh, in all instances. And they were uh, edited, um, phase-aligned, uh, so that I was able to you know, dip into both of them without causing issues. And Larry kind of touched on it earlier. You know, we wanted to kind of create this vibrant, you know, busy location uh, uh, throughout the casino. The big thing for us as a challenge was uh, trying to create movement, especially in the oneers. If you start in the office and you walk through the casino, we wanted to make sure you had you could follow along. So you'd have you know slot machines kind of start and then go away or blackjack table. And so it was kind of trying to create this motion that was as you were passing through it. So it didn't feel so. Uh, one or two dimensional that it had, you know, this 3D kind of effect as you're walking through it. Um, that was, that was the biggest challenge for that, I think. And then I think Larry also touched upon the fact that there were two separate river boats and I, uh, making one much more analog with bells and, uh, you know, sirens and things like that. And the newer casino with much more high tech sounding, um, slot machines and gaming machines like that were the things that we really tried to separate the two. We didn't spend a ton of time in the, in the older casino. Uh, when it was up and running, except for the scene where they were trying to pull the scam and that, uh, where they were trying to do the slot machine scam. And that was perfect because we had already established kind of bells and, and, uh, things like that. So, um, when we wanted to do that, we could build upon that and, 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 and really set it up for, uh, that scene. So it was how exactly. we approach that. 
one of the things I wanted to ask you about is there's an off, you know, this is a dialogue drone show. Um, and, 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 and the, the writing is amazing and the performances are extraordinary. Um, but it is plot, it's, it's plot and dialogue heavy. And so you got a lot of scenes with a couple or maybe three characters talking in rooms to each other. And I'm just curious, like, what's your strategy to kind of keep the ear engaged and keep that acoustically interesting as you, as you have a lot of those dialogue driven sequences? Sure. I mean, we try to ground the dialogue so that it's very much in place, uh, in, in whatever the location is dictating visually. So I always try to add a little bit, not, not willy nilly, of course, it's intentional, uh, but use the visual space that we're seeing as an opportunity to kind of cement the dialogue in that location, uh, vis-a-vis reverb. So if we're in, let's say, Buddy's Crypt and they're gathering money, you know, to launder, that has a certain sound. What are the surfaces? It's kind of hard slate and tile and all that and you want to make that kind of have a certain feel to it uh if we're at the uh, frank cosgrove's loading dock that has a very large open cavernous space we kind of want to laden that with some uh heavy verb uh certainly in season three at navarro's uh dungeon which we can get into i i did a bunch of different things you know both reverb and delays and whatnot but i'm always kind of trying to keep it interesting just as it's interesting visually and cinemagraphically do the same thing auditorily. We want to kind of have an opportunity for reverb. And so that kind of keeps it interesting. And then what Nick provides is this wonderful pastiche of uh, sounds happening off screen. So if it's on the lake, little boats passing by, you know, vehicles, motors, birds, and and he has a lot of uh, indigenously recorded uh, Missouri-specific sounds that are, they lend themselves very well, put you in that space and very lush, dense backgrounds and ambiences uh, that give a little bit of, uh, you know, auditory intrigue. Each location is kind of a character unto itself. So we really try to make that speak to uh, what the action's happening and what what we're kind of seeing. Um, A lot of times when we have like the Wendy and Marty scenes, uh, where you have this, you know, incredible action going on. We, you know, we try to stay out of the way as much as we can, but we look for those little nuances that we can add to really, you know, kind of push the drama forward. And it might be something subtle like, you know, a, a creak of a chair or a hand down on a table that just brings an emphasis to a dialogue line that can kind of push the, the scene forward. Sometimes it might just be a little whiff of air or, uh, you know, a car by in the right kind of place. It, it's, it's when you look at a lot of the scenes, like um, they seem very general, but you look for those moments to really kind of find those little uh, holes and places where you can lay something into there just to kind of push the story forward uh, a little bit. Um, uh, there's a lot of them, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> at the, sometimes we're just, you know, I watch those scenes and I'm just kind of blown away at the acting. So I'm just like, I just want to stay away from this. I don't want to get, into, I don't want to, I don't want to take away from anything. That's the biggest challenge is not to try to take away from anything you're, you're, you're seeing on the screen. Exactly. And of course, our composers, uh, Danny and Saunders, I mean, the, the score is phenomenal and they always keep you on the edge of your seat. That unease, that tension, uh, is there. And that's used in a very, powerful way uh the the instrumentation uh is evocative of that location you know what i mean it's very specific and and uh it's regarded so well that we've heard from colleagues uh, in the industry that people are using ozark score for temping on their shows well tell me a little bit more about that you just mentioned um the score is done by um uh danny and sonder um who do have last names but we all just refer to them as danny and sonder, yeah, sonder exactly um, and we, you, you, you mentioned the specific instrumentation kind of matching the location, but what is, tell me more about that. What, is, what were they doing? And, and, you know, musical instruments, they have a certain 
palette arrangement of instruments that, be it like bottle blows, you know, I- instruments that you would find, uh, what, what, what would be played in the Ozark? What kind of family instruments, you know, bands and things like that, local little things. Kind, kind of bluegrass. Kind of bluegrass sort of, theme, exactly. Yeah. So those instruments. So you're going to have bottle blows, you're going to have jars, jugs, uh, string instruments, loosely wound string instruments. So you're going to have your cellos and they can sound beautiful and, uh, you know, pretty with a piano added for, uh, you know, uh, Wendy's brother towards the end of season three. Uh, but mostly it's kind of pizzicato string plucks and those kind of detuned low end, you know, upright bass plucks. So the, the arrangement really is wonderful because it, it's a local flavor, but then it's also this dread, this string line that comes in and the powerful low end, you know, bass drum drops. Uh, you just know when you hear it, it's like, oh, that, and they're really wonderful at developing themes. It's like something bad's going to happen when I hear this theme. <laughs> What's nice about it, too, is it's not overpowering. Um, so on the sound design side, what's nice about it is you never, at the beginning of it, you never quite know if it's sound effect or if it's music. So it can start as, as like a sound effect or an ambience of something that then grows into the bottom strings kind of coming up and then kind of you know slowly taking over the scene. So it can start very uh, innocent in a scene and then quickly, you know, turn and the music kind of takes it over in a very subtle way and, and uh, uh, can, you know, it, it can go both ways, but generally it goes very dark and it can take over a scene really, really quickly without you, you know, you know, uh, signaling it or, you know, raising the flag that, oh, we're turning, we're turning the corner on the scenes. Yeah, exactly. No matter if I interject, I just wanted to cre- uh, credit uh, the fact that we have a scoring mixer, which is unique. It's very, it, it's very unusual it, it, on, on, it, even it's on feature films anymore. Uh, right? I, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's it's nice what happens. So Phil McGowan is the scoring mixer, and he takes the composer's music. And I've heard temps that they've done demo, and he just refines it and equalizes it and balances it and puts it in a 5-1 sound field uh, wonderfully. Now, normally that would be my job on a show to you know, give the score a pass and put each stem in its place. Uh, but the stems are so well balanced that I can kind of weave them in at unity. And then if I need to, you know, suspend that group and get in there and let's say Jason Bateman, who's coming to playback is, is listening or the picture editors are listening and they're thinking that maybe this is too soon to have that ticking, pulsing kind of, uh, tension device. Let's hold off on that or let's lower that, you know. So he gives me a very good layout of what should be with his intention in mind. And it's, you know, I think, uh, superbly mixed on his part. And my job is really just to kind of weave it in and out of uh, dialogue. Well, you, you talk about, um, about, you know, having that balance between the sound design and the music. And, and I wanted to, there's a, a specific sequence that, uh, that I just loved in, in episode eight. Um, the, the character Ben is Wendy's brother and he's, he's a very troubled, uh, guy. Uh, and part of the, part of the plot line of the episode is that, uh, he, he, uh, is struggling with some mental, uh, illness, uh, throughout the season. And, um, in, in episode eight, there's a, there's a specific moment when, uh, Wendy and Marty are trying to have a big kind of, uh, outdoor fundraiser, uh, on the, on the riverboat and, and Ben shows up and kind of wrecks it. And he, it starts, it starts way outside and you see Ben get out of a taxi and he comes in and you can just, you can tell that this evening is about to go horribly, horribly wrong. Loan abuses. The second will target fraud and foreclosure relief. Both we need to talk. I'm in the middle of an event. Whatever to Marty's partner in Chicago. Okay, let's, let's go talk downstairs. No, right here, right now. You make that partner disappear too? Did the real shit start when you got here to Ozarks? This is not the place. 
face. What? This? This is fucking fake. It's a lie. How long? There's an administration in Washington, for instance. You're having an episode, and I, I need you just to take a deep do breath. Not, do not. Do not fucking do that to me. Don't you fucking condescend me like I'm fucking sick and you're well. Okay. Okay. We can, we can talk about all of this, but just not right now. Let's talk about Ruth's dad. I need you to keep your voice down. I will not keep my fucking voice down! Hey, Ben. Ben, is everything okay? No, Marty. Nothing is fucking okay. I need you to just calm down a little bit. <laughs> I mean, we put their voices because they're on a public address system. Uh, you can hear them kind of off-filtered and, and pre-delay and slaps and things like that happening as Ben pulls up from the cab. So we know that the fundraiser's happening on the other side of where he is outside. Uh, and as he enters in, we're hearing the you know, the foundation speech is in full bloom and you know, like you said, something bad's going to happen. So we're kind of establishing that, that things are fine. The music creeps in at a time and the way they shot it really did help inform us. I mean, we see him in the background and then we see Helen turn her head. Uh, you know, something's amok. Um, and then once we got into the fight itself, we made a decision to still keep the speakers on the stage alive, but really just kind of pull them off into the background. It's, we don't really care about what they're saying. We just need to know that the audience is really with them but we have little reacts as bad activity is happening in the foreground with Ben, Marty, and Wendy. And, uh, you know, obviously Root's reaction is, is seen as well. Nick, feel free to... Oh, I, I think that that's a really good example of the, the, you know, that we were talking about earlier about how the music takes over for the sound design. You know, it's set as this uh, uh, location with with the the PAs and... And, it, and it's a slow build of the music coming underneath as as Ben starts losing control. So it, it's a, I think a really really great example of how we blend that together. It doesn't it doesn't start out big and you, you like you said the audience kind of knows something's going to go awry, but we wait to that moment where we really need to tell that story or push it further to let the music kind of take over. It's a really really uh, elegant way of, of 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 pushing that forward. It seems uh, it seems real simple, but it it, it was really uh, complex in getting that to work together and and not just kind of you know uh, um, make it so obvious. It's the simple stuff that's hard to execute, right? Always, <laughs> Always. every single time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like the big shootouts. Shootouts are always easy, and car chases can be easy. They take a little longer to mix, but um, you know, it's like, oh, add another gun, add another Rico. You know, it's uh, I've got five minutes of two people talking that you got to fill this hole. That, that <laughs> you have to really think about it. So. Well, that's I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's the dirty little secret, you know, for, in in many ways in in our business is that it's you know it's super easy to hide behind some gunshots and some car you know car chases and stuff like that, but you know, the, sometimes the, the, the really the hardest stuff to execute is, is two people, you know, walking down the street, talking to each other. Cause you really have nothing to hide behind in terms of, you know, um, uh, you know, making a compelling soundtrack and, and keeping everything clean and, and, and simple and easy to understand. And so it's one of the reasons why I really enjoy, you know, on this series of episodes of the podcast talking, you know, 
about shows like Ozark that maybe people wouldn't necessarily think of as like, well, that's not a very, not necessarily a flashy sound show uh, because, you know, it's modern day. It's a, uh, you know, uh, but that, that to me is why these conversations are so much fun to kind of pop the hood and take a listen to what you guys are actually doing uh, with the sound design and the, and the mix on these shows. Well, it's, it's interesting you should say that because I always find that as well. Like I'll see, you know, these big action things and like, wow, I, I'm, blown away at the scope of work that goes into it. But I don't feel like when we're working on a show like this, we work any less hard. <laughs> I think we work as hard, if not harder sometimes, to really kind of uh, find those elements that work together. And it's nice that people do notice it, that it's, you know, conceptually, uh, it's a, a whole that has to work together versus, you know, these big, you know, set pieces that are just huge. Um, so it's neat that people that they, we get a lot of people that, you know, talk, want to talk about the sound on this show, which is really cool. And we have to credit the picture editors are, are fantastic. They really have a very close working relationship with, with Jason and Chris Mundy, the showrunner. Uh, it's Cindy Malo, uh, Vic Patel and, uh, the odd show by, you know, Heather Goodwin, um, who was Cindy's uh, assistant in the first two seasons, but, you know, edited on her own uh, uh, on season three. But Cindy and Vic mostly covered most of the episodes uh, with the exception of one, I think, in season three. Is that right, Nick? Yeah. Um, but those guys do a terrific job with their assistants creating a temp, kind of a guide for us. But they don't have temp love. They're not too precious about it. They're like, this is kind of the framework to work with, and this is the idea that we're heading towards. But you guys take it further and rework it from scratch, but this is kind of the aim that we're looking for. In other words, it's not paint by numbers. It's very much, this is kind of the idea that we've worked through with Jason. Let's hear your take on that. No, absolutely. It's been, a, that's always been great about this show is that it has never really been temp love. And, um, you know, we're kind of in a groove now in season three and we talked about how it's evolved. And so we're always looking for new things to do, but they really trust us in, uh, kind of staying within the, you know, kind of the, the, the palette that we built, but learn to, you know, build upon it as we go. And, uh, it's a really great, you know, uh, collaborative process with uh, uh, the filmmakers and with uh, what we do for sure. Well, I, I don't want to undersell this as well because you guys did have some opportunities to have some good fun in season three from a sound design perspective. And I'm, I'm thinking about it probably, you know, my, my favorite show from a sound perspective is, is maybe episode four, um, which is when Marty gets abducted and taken down to Navarro's, uh, kind of palatial estate, uh, in Mexico to get, uh, to get interrogated. And one of the things I love about this, about the show, and it comes back again in the last episode and in, in, in episode 10, like it, it, Marty could be about to get killed at any moment and any of you and several at several points through this season, but especially on episode four when he gets kidnapped. And so, um, one of the, one of the really fun things from a sound design perspective is that, you know, Navarro has a dungeon in the basement of his mansion. <laughs> like most cartel guys do. Sure. Like they, like they all do. And, and, and I would say that Marty spends some quality time in the dungeon. Who's that? Who is that? 
Ven acá. A tu rodilla. Rápido. So tell me a little bit about um, that particular environment and how you built that from a sonic perspective and sort of the fun that it allowed you guys to have from uh, from a sound standpoint. We did have a lot of fun with that. I can speak to what I did with the dialogue is, um, and these guys were great. They didn't note it to death. They basically accepted it for what it was. And it's like, okay, I buy that. They're, they're very, they give us a lot of freedom and latitude to kind of experiment and maybe things get tweaked here and there, but it's not like a rework. Let's use a different type of reverb. They, they don't get into the weeds on those kinds of things. They kind of leave that to us. But um, I, I like to build reverbs and delays and things like that using more than one specific plugin, for instance. So I'll use, let's say, Altiverb to get the kind of the realistic sounding space that we're in. And then I can pan that in a very specific way and then maybe use a different reverb that's kind of more centri- centered on the surrounds. And then a delay like slapper let's just say i can have that doing even different things so that the voice sounds like it's emanating from obviously the space but also kind of going up through that grate throughout the cavernous uh you know lair <laughs> that navarro has so and the key is you want to keep it intelligible so it's there as kind of a, an effect a reminder that the the size and the scope of the space the discomfort uh and we later use that as a tool for the music that uh, navarro tortures marty with so it's it's a treatment but you have to be careful you you want to lay it on but not so thick that it overpowers so at least that's what i do with the dialogue and of course then the music is doing what it's doing you know kind of sneaking in and then kind of hitting us with uh, big percussion and you know strings and whatnot and nick did a whole build with uh, ambience yeah on the ambience side it was uh you know he starts in the dark and we wanted to kind of make it this cold um you know kind of lonely place and uncertainty you don't really know what's it's going to happen so when the like one of the handlers comes walking down the hall we could really play with the idea of you could actually hear him coming and not know who it is or what they're going to do. And if this is that final moment where they, you know, they off, uh, uh, Marty. Um, so there was the space where it's kind of himself, uh, alone in the dark. And then when we did the light, uh, which I thought was just a great contrast to what I've seen in these things, having this big, powerful light, um, the cool part is obviously it, it, it quickly changed the direction of a scene, uh, so that we can bring in this new element. Uh, but then we could also change, uh, the tensity with it, the, the buzzing of that light. You know, we could raise and lower it as we wanted to get more intense with, uh, with the interactions with that. And then nice part is you shut off the light and then you go back to that silence. So it, it, they gave us these little things that we could build off of to build up and then pull back when we needed to. Uh, that also then, you know, moved into some of his, uh, sound design as he's kind of reflecting and trying to figure out what, you know, if this is really the end for him. Uh, 
And then, like Larry said, with the, the music, having that torture music, then it could scream to another level on top of that, which was really, really nice. It wasn't just a, a dungeon where he's just waiting for his inevitable doom. It, it, it allows us to sonically take him through these paces as he's uh, sitting there wondering what's going to happen to him. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. And and my effects partner, Kevin, will weed through, like Nick will provide this amazing collection of effects and, and kind of has an idea of what he wants, but then Kevin will take it further and place them in the sound field, similarly as I'm doing with the dialogue, and kind of further add the juice and delays and whatnot to kind of put the ground, the effects and backgrounds in a similar space that I'm putting the dialogue in. Well, Nick, I wanted to follow up because, you know, you mentioned there's a, a, a there's a, a big part of those sequences in the dungeon is is Marty being alone and they leave him down there for a long period of time so he really has time to reflect on you know is this going to be the end and where as he and and the interesting thing one of the interesting things is um, there's a lot of flashbacks that that get integrated in that uh, he's thinking about his childhood and obviously it's sort of a it's a very pensive time for him 99 bottles of beer take one down pass it around 98 bottles of beer on the wall, 98 bottles of beer on the wall, 98 bottles of beer, take one down, pass it around, 97 bottles of beer on the wall, 96 bottles of beer on the wall, 96 bottles of beer, take one down, pass it around, 95 bottles of beer on the wall. Talk a little bit about the sound treatment for the flashbacks and transitions and because there's a lot going on in that in the track there. Well, like I said, the light was kind of the, the transition that took us to the flashbacks. It was kind of the element that kind of like it was like his eyes opening to seeing, you know, his past and trying to reflect upon that. And then we tried to give the the, 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 the flashback sequences their own feel that uh, the nice part is, you know, it's him as a child, so it has a lot more analog sounds. Uh, the hospital is a lot more analog sounds. So we didn't really have to reshape it and treat it too much because it, it kind of stood on its own uh, as its own soundscape. But it definitely was in contrast, especially to the dungeon. So when you went there, you knew exactly you had gone somewhere else. So I think the only place we did any kind of treatment was at the end um, when Marty's father passes i think we did a little bit of treatment of the voices and for him to kind of reflect on that moment but like i said the the way it was designed uh visually allowed us to not have to over tweak it in a way to to make us feel like we're in different places it kind of did that on its own and and it was just about finding kind of the right you know sound effects to kind of fit that that scene yeah there was one other morph uh, sonically that happened that you did a great job with nick um and kevin uh my partner taking the sounds of the coins oh, that right. kept falling mm -hmm. from uh, into the arcade machine into yeah. kind of the gate, uh, whatever, the locked metal gate opening, that kind of perfect blend, uh, you know, between the sounds themselves was a very good morph, I thought. Uh, it was effective from back in time to uh, Marty's Hell. Yeah. Uh, that's great. It's a great touch. Yeah. It, again, those simple things make a huge, yeah. make a uh, huge no. difference. And a lot of that's just the way it's shot too. I mean, they yeah. give us these beautiful elements to work with. So it really allows us to creatively really kind of, you know, explore and try things and see what, what we can make work on that. And yeah. like, like, like Larry mentioned, the editors do a really good job of laying kind of a nice template for us, but then they, we really can expand upon that and really build it up. So it has a lot more weight and, 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 and drive to it than what was in the offline. So. 
I, I feel like you guys also got some opportunities to have some fun uh, with the sound of the cars in the show. It's, it's sort of a running joke that uh, throughout the throughout the entire you know show that I think in in an attempt to maintain a low profile. Uh, Marty and Wendy both drive just crap cars. <laughs> All um, that money, and then, and then yeah, and then Ben shows up. Is that is that Ben's van? That thing was just a what a, <laughs> a, a jalopy wreck, right? <laughs> yeah. So, did you guys have access to production vehicles to to do some recording with, or how to how to, to tell me a little bit about that aspect of things? Uh, well, of course, we come on to a show super late. You know, by the time we come on, they've you know. Uh, kind of wrap production and you know we don't always know what we're going to get uh sometimes we'll get a little bit of a heads up hey we've got this coming along you know let us know what you have or start pulling some stuff for that and so of course ben's van was something that um we didn't see till we actually got to that episode uh would have been nice to have been able to go out and record it but the the nice part is uh it didn't do a lot of maneuvering it was it was a lot of driving shots in it so we decided at that point instead of going on take the time to record something let's find some elements that really work with kind of the character of uh of the of the car itself so i think we ended up using like an El Camino kind of idle, kind of steady for it. But then what we really looked for was like things like rattles and winds and whistles and things like that, tire noises, things that we could definitely give it more character than just, you know, cutting a steady of a car. Um, sometimes, you know, you, that's how you have to kind of approach it is you, if you're out of time, you just kind of, you look for the things that tell you that it's a car, it's moving from point A to point B, but then you look for those little details you can add to it to give it its own, you know, uh, sound uh, and, and Ben's van was definitely uh, a little bit of a challenge of that, um, especially because they have some pretty long dialogue scenes in there too. And it was the same thing. Uh, it's finding that right car by at the right time so it doesn't interfere with the dialogue uh, and, and and it helps you know push the the tension a little bit or it's a rattle in the right place or the wind wisp of the uh, of the roll down window or whatnot. So you look for those moments to kind of give it that up. Uh, uh, little sonic blend. I just want to interject. Yeah, I think it's fantastic uh, the the sound work on the vehicles. Uh, but production sound, I learned this that you know they'll shoot <clears throat> the car kind of a poor man's process stage, if you will. Sometimes they'll drag it, sometimes they won't. Uh, I understand that they remove the windshield and they'll put that in <laughs> later, which actually for me does mean the world of good because otherwise you get that kind of comb filtery, you know, very uh, boxy sounding dialogue. Uh, it's now much more realistic, rich, and, you know, you can get a boom in there or a plant mic or a uh, combination. And it sounds much better. Without a doubt. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. And then they just put the reflections in later. After the fact, yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Well, and of course, at the opposite end of the spectrum you got you got sue the therapist who 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 is who is who is is bribing both marty and wendy yeah. uh uh and she shows up with with, with a mclaren is that yeah. what she's what she's yeah, driving which is, which is just ludicrous especially especially in the ozarks and she ends up paying the price for her indeed <laughs> the air of her ways <laughs> i'm i'm hoping i'm hoping nick that you can tell me that you got to have a fun day recording mclaren sounds but now that we actually did record because the, the, they had, they were very specific about the McLaren and, uh, it having its own sound. Um, so, you know, they're like, and it doesn't do a lot in the show. It's not like she's out doing fast and furious moves in it, but, uh, <laughs> the, the, the amount of time it's on the screen, it definitely had to have its own thing. So I let, um, Matt Decker, who's one of my sound designers, I said, this is, 
This is all you. This this is the directive. They don't want it to be a Ferrari. They don't want it this. If you can go out and find us a McLaren, go out and record it. So he actually did. He found a McLaren dealership here in L.A. and went out and recorded all the doors and all the alarms. And he did a bunch of driving sequences just because they let him. So he did that. <laughs> but um, the, the, the funny part about Sue's car is that she can't drive it. So <laughs> she's got this $200,000 car. Grind, she's grinding the gears. Yeah, she's right. And we couldn't really get them to do that for us. No. So we had a kind of, uh, he did a great job taking starts and engine offs and cutting them in a way. So it sounds like she's choking up this car, but it's actually really McLaren sounds that he, he was able to manipulate to do that. Uh, uh, he did a great job with that. It was really funny. Good to see you, Wendy. Trust the process. Okay, bye. Agent Evans is expecting us. And I will say, I think that was on our on the stage everybody's favorite moment because every time it went by, it was already funny, visually funny of this little lady getting out of this two hundred thousand dollars sports car. But I think Matt did a great job just adding the yeah. perfect little touches to take it to another level, and everybody laughed. There wasn't yeah. a single person that saw that scene that didn't laugh when they saw it. So uh, he very was really effective. proud of that. Yeah, very very yeah. effective. Well, to me, that's one of the things that, you know, that people don't necessarily pay attention to. But, you know, in that sense, the sound is really telling an important part of the story. Sue is such a bizarre, kooky character. And as you point out, you know, she she uses her her windfall to go buy a $200,000 sports car. But <laughs> you so guys crazy. really sell that with the yeah. sound of this car in a way that, that just reinforces the comedy. And it's an, an essential part of the storytelling. Well, and like I said, it was it was really easy to go over the top, and that was we knew that that was never going to fly. So we had to find a real subtle way, and I think getting the right sounds for the actual car, and then finding a way to manipulate them to do what we wanted it to do was the, definitely the right way to go with it. So he, he did a great job with it. It was really really fun. That's great. Well, I want to talk a little bit about episode ten, the final the final episode of the season. Talk about talk about tension. Uh, you know, we we've spent the the bulk of the past few episodes watching, you know, Helen, who's the lawyer kind of undermining, uh, Wendy and Marty and they're undermining her. And then they all kind of get summoned down to Mexico to Navarro's, um, to fly down on a private jet to Navarro's, uh, estate. And, and we know that the, you know, the final reckoning is coming and certainly the way the story is set up, you know, Marty, Marty and Wendy may not, uh, may not survive this, this outing down to, uh, 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 to Mexico. And it's a super tense, really just very, uh, fraught situation. So talk to me a little bit about the challenges for you guys and, in, in building that tension and kind of building to what was a very, very surprising resolution of that conflict, shall we say? Uh, what are you talking about? My boss just told me you're testifying against Navarro in exchange for witness protection. Why would you take that deal and not mine? Are you scared of prison time? Is this windy? Uh, that is not true. I'm, I'm not doing what they're saying. Okay, good. Blood pressure down. 
You need to get yourself in here right now and clear this up. I can't do that. You have to. They type up your statement. You do not want false information leaking out. Well, I'm, I'm about to get on a jet. Is that jet going to Mexico? Marty? Marty, if that jet is going to Mexico, do not get on. Um, thank you for the warning. I, I think the idea is we wanted to keep the tension going and have a place to go. We knew that our kind of peak would be there, and we had other little peaks and valleys in between. There was obviously the, you know, shootout scenes and, and whatnot uh, in the the church, but we wanted it to rise and not overdo it with the music and sound effects too soon. We wanted a place to go because we knew the biggest moment would be that shocking ending. And when I first saw it, as we were, we always watched the cut in advance. Uh, I, I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? As I'm sure the I audience did. I, did not, I didn't I see did it coming see at all. Coming, yeah. uh, some did. So, but we were very uh, conscious of that, just like the slow build and, and to not undermine where the climax would be. And kind of from the moment that I think Jonah shows up, uh, at Helen's place really is when it kind of really takes off. It kind of accelerates to a further level, uh, you know, when he has her under threat of the shotgun. And from there, between the score and the sound effects and what's happening, and we have a you know few little moments like that, he blows out the window. That's like a very powerful moment right there. It's kind of a big punctuation mark on his feelings. You know, he feels betrayed by his mom, you know, lied about the fact that Ben, uh, she had been killed. And, you know, he's looking at his ashes. So that was a big kind of sonic moment. But we'd like to have little peaks and valleys and not just keep it elevated the entire time until the ending. Drop back down again so then we have another plateau to go to. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It was it's a it's a unique episode in that because you do definitely feel the tension right from the get go all the way to the end. And you know, any one of those scenes, the Jonah scene could have been the last scene of the show. It could have been mm-hmm. you just don't know where the end of this ep- episode is. Um, so you, you're trying to build these, not false resolutions, but you're trying to build a, a tension, but it's not the main tension. Like you just need to keep going. So like when you come out of that scene and you go to the airport, it's, it rises another level and another level, um, without just, you know, like, you know, drums and score taking you all right. the way there. It, you, you let the audience kind of step into that, 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 that scene and like, try to determine whether this is the last scene or is this the last scene. So then even then when there's almost a moment of breath in that last shot, you think, okay, I don't know how this is going to end that, that gunshot becomes even more striking and, 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 uh, start, uh, uh, powerful, powerful. Exactly. Yeah. So it's uh, it's unique that way. Um, and like I said, there isn't, there isn't score all the way through. Sorry. Yeah. Um, no, I was about to say, I feel like you guys carved out a moment right before that last guy. Mm-hmm, so sure. it's even more. Without exactly. a doubt. Yeah. And we weren't going to have score drive that. That was the big thing. So it had to be subtle in that way of, of giving us uh, a moment to let, really hit that. So um, it was uh, well, it really was, unique. It was, a, it was a shocking moment. <laughs> I'm glad I like that. <laughs> that is, you know? that that's that's the sure. cool part about this show, too. You were talking about the dungeon. I think, you know, obviously everybody assumes that Marty and Wendy will be there to the end. 
But the story is written in such a way where if they had offed Marty in episode in that episode in the dungeon, the story can continue. So that makes everybody seem really uncertain. So it could have been Marty that got off at the end of, of that episode. It could have been, it could have been Wendy. You just don't know. So there's always these moments and us, even though we're working on it, sometimes we don't know until the end of the season. Like we saw that episode when uh, we started, you know, previewing it. We had no idea that's where it's going. We try not to read the scripts ahead of time. Yeah. We let the kind of let it develop. So we're on the same ride as most people. And then we're like, okay, well now how do we take this and, and, and create this world of you just don't know what's going to happen next. So yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun that way. Yeah, I agree. That, that episode is definitely a, a, a culmination of the entire season wrapped up in, in one episode. So. Well, let's talk about process for a, a bit. Are you guys sure. getting the episodes in order um, and, and, no. and walk us through <laughs> just t- 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 yeah, walk mm-hmm. us through the process and, sure. Um, sure. you know, uh, Larry, how long do you have to mix uh, the typical episode that those that, that kind of stuff? Sure. Yeah. Um, so our workflow is and obviously it visits Nick first. Yeah. So, you know, he and his crew go through and, and if you, Nick, if you want to talk about, you know, wh- how many days you have on it and, and your crew, then yeah. I can get to the mix part of it. If it, yeah, it might be easier for me to kind of start it. So normally, um, we're about 10 days of editorial per episode is what we average. It's usually, uh, five to six days, seven days of dialogue. I mean, these are full shows, you know, they're 57 to 60 minutes long. So the dialogue edit is, uh, is a lot of work. Um, uh, let's see. I have a dialogue, uh, editor and I have a co-supervisor, Steve Grubbs, who di- deals with all the dialogue. Uh, and then I have a sound effects team of three or four people as a full Foley team. So we're probably a crew of about, you know, eight to 10 that are on the show on a regular basis. Uh, and everybody does something very specific. Like my dialogue editor does dialogue. My co-supervisor, like I said, does dialogue in the ADR. Uh, so he'll shoot all the group. He'll shoot all the principals. Um, he'll consolidate the tracks and make sure that it's the way that it should be edited for the stage so Larry can mix it. And then uh, my crew, um, I get the track. So they, they spend about five to 10 days on the dialogue side. Uh, I get 10 days on the effects side. Uh, I usually get it about a day, maybe two days before the mix. And then I put everything together, all the Foley, all the backgrounds, all the effects. And I take a pass myself and go through it. Uh, I, that's my pass of looking for those moments of trying to add the character of whatever little scene we've got going on and really finding those little nuances. Um, um, and then I usually, then that's the point where I, you know, pass it off to Larry and, uh, he can talk about the. So, uh, we basically have three days total, start to finish to get through the show. And that's including fixes, you know, playback for, uh, Aaron Mitchell, who's our producer, uh, along with the picture editors, uh, and then a, you know, pass for Jason. And then later the afternoon of the third day, uh, for Chris Monday and Netflix. So basically the first day, day and a half, we have to basically put the show up on the screen. And that means pre-dubbing and I'm pre-dubbing, working through the dialogue. I'm, I'm muting the music. I'm not listening to the music at all so that I could focus all my attention on any uh, issues that arise with the dialogue, balancing, equalizing, making sure that all the angles match consistently, putting the reverb treatments on and, and such uh, that need to occur, any noise reduction. And I try to tread with a light foot in that area, uh, really more just mitigating problems that can occur maybe with 
bugs, cicadas that could uh, impede the track that are, you know, overpowering, but not getting rid of them because you want to mitigate, but not, if you eliminate everything, sometimes the dial can sound unnatural. So my job is to really just take little small bites and, and you know, kind of leave it in its um, unfettered state. So that's the dialogue portion of it. Uh, I, I'm pre-dubbing, and I'll put in any loop group in ADR during that pass, like I said, while the music is, is muted. My partner, Kevin Valentine, will work through the backgrounds. He'll start off in headphones just so that he can have his own little uh, environment of me not, you know, blasting him. Uh, but then he'll get off the headphones because it's hard to really knowing context where you're going to be. So we'll share the same speakers. He'll be on one part of the show. I'll be on a different part. But this is what we need to do to cover the ground that we're covering. It's anywhere from 52 to, you know, as Nick said, even 60 minutes. So it's a, it's a lot to get through. So we'll do that. He'll carve up and mix the backgrounds, panning, so and so forth. Uh, and then he'll go back to the beginning and then kind of work through the hard effects. I'm further refining the music. I'll sketch in the source cues. There's usually needle drops, songs, what whatnot. Still not focusing on the score yet. I really need to kind of give that my full attention. Um, so he'll have worked through the, the hard effects. Then at that point, we'll marry up linearly, and uh, Kevin will mix in the foley. And the foley is fantastic. It's done by Bespoke Post in New Zealand. Amy Barber's the mixer. Jonathan Bruce, the foley artist. Uh, it's terrific, and it's very detailed and adds yet another layer of interest uh, in differentiation, I think, uh, from other shows. There's those little details like glass debris, uh, leaves, crunchy leaves, the, you know, in Ozark walking, uh, this grit anytime that, you know, in a garage, it's not just a hard footstep. It's, it's a dirty garage, you know? So those kinds of details that, that Nick specifies that those guys do an excellent job, uh, executing, but Kevin will mix in the Foley while the backgrounds and the hard effects are playing as he's previous mixed them as my dialogue pre-dub is playing back. I'm kind of just mastering that. And now I'm focusing on the music, weaving that in and out and we'll marry up and get through the show. Like I said, we'll, about a day and a half. And then on the second half of the second day, uh, we'll have the picture editor and Aaron Mitchell, the producer come in and they'll give their notes. And if we have time to execute them, we will. If not, first thing on the third day, we'll execute the picture editor's notes. The picture editors will return joined by Jason Bateman, who will uh, watch the show down. And he is a broad stroke guy in that it's all about story. He won't get into the fine details of, well, let's see, that reverb could have a little more slap. What's your pre-delay? You know, he doesn't get into those uh, specifics. But he has a very good command of the technical language. You know, he is very good at communicating all aspects the, from, you know, the cinematography to even like what kind of lenses is a he's director. An accomplished, he's an accomplished director. Very accomplished Pretty director. So. so he understands the, the lexicon of what we do, even if he doesn't know the exact terms. Uh, although I, I would argue he learns them and, and uses them anyway. Uh, he's very good about it. We use minimal ADR only for maybe it's a story point or something like that. Really, it's all about salvaging the dialogue, uh, you know, production track. He, he loves the performances, uh, and those are as intended. Uh, and so we'll work with him, uh, and then do his fixes. He'll go away. And then in the afternoon of the third day, Chris Mundy, the showrunner, will come as well as uh, representatives from Netflix and MRC, and we'll watch the show down, uh, while we're printing it, print mastering it, because they usually have only a handful of notes, and we'll simply punch in their notes, and the show is ready to deliver at the end of three no overtime days. So, no overtime, very critical of that. So you guys are working at, at Formosa Group. Now, are all these people actually physically coming in and reviewing with you? Or, or and I presume this is... This was pre-pandemic. Uh, they, they were, right? Yeah, we, we wrapped at the beginning of the year. How so are you working now? Now, our approach is, and we can speak of this, Nick and I just wrapped up a show together uh, where Nick, as well as his staff, would all be off-site, and I would send a Zoom invite 
to everybody and we'd have zoom on the stage on my laptop and uh amplified over a little speaker so that i could hear better um and we would have the showrunners and that show was david graziano and michelle mclaren and any director of note would join us so that would be for communicating and so you're kind of juggling the mute there making sure that you know we, we specify that at least people use headphones so uh so we're streaming a stereo down mix uh we were using eps cineworks we're now using evercast uh and that streams from the stage live real-time picture and sound and you know we mixed coyote and five one and we're the only people there my partner kevin and i and our assistant noah that can actually hear it in five one so they have to trust us uh that it's gonna translate and it does and nick has a really nice stage uh that i'm in right now uh which is capable of playing back in five one we send him the stems so then he knows okay this is what's really in the mix because evercast while as good as it is is still a compressed it's about 320 kilobaud per second kind of like a dolby digital i would say it sounds very good but again they're hearing it in stereo so they're missing some of the detail so we are accomplishing mixing and fixing a show in a remote fashion so it's just us at formosa group on stage two in hollywood and there everyone else is remote we were quite lucky because a lot of places weren't doing it that way they were having mixers work from home and trying to mix in pre-dub and then they would send a stem to their partner and then they would try to mix against that and then they would do some kind of, you know, contract that they would then send out. We, when we started on that show, we were really pretty adamant about, you know, if we can't be in, at least have the mixers in the same room and generate notes to them, have them do the fixes together. There's no point in doing this. We'll just, everything will just take way too long. And it was a new show. So we didn't know what kind of, um, you know, process we were going to have in getting it on the screen. Uh, they were people I had worked with in the past, so I had an idea of what they were going to want, but it was all new material, all new settings. They had a very specific idea of uh, the sound they wanted. So if we couldn't be in the same room or at least communicate to everybody in the same room, there was no sense of moving forward, even though we had, at that time, you know, air dates. But um, uh, it did, it did, at first we were super, you know, uh, concerned that it was never going to work and then as we got into the process larry did a great job of making sure we could really communicate together that was the big uh the big difference i think between uh having it work and not having it work is that we could communicate and get our notes across and that there was these checks and balances that i would listen to the six track here and i could let the producers know at home that hey yeah it's full and it, it, it's the way you th- you know it's supposed to sound and that the they could really focus on the quality of the dialogue is the music and the balance of that working. So they're looking at it a different, they had to look at it from a different scope and trust us and um, that it was going to fill out and, 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 and fit the, fit the, uh, you know, the, the screen. I tried to keep it interactive and engaged, and I had uh, four cameras on the stage so that they had an overhead they could see. <laughs> well, I, because, you know, when, when you're disconnected, like, what are they doing? You know, there's a lot of, you know, watching paint dry on a, on a dub stage. So I try to have it so they can at least on Zoom select, okay, this is from the back of the room. This is over my console. This is on Kevin. You know, this is both of us. So at least you can kind of see what's going on. And same thing like on a phone. You just don't know what anybody's doing. So you're like, hello, hello, I got a question. And they're working and you don't know that. So uh, being able to see them, it was really helpful. It's hard enough to get the mixer's attention on the stage when you're all there. Much <laughs> that, you know, get, I joke that it was, stop, it was right? hard to throw things at Kevin to make him stop. <laughs> but, but that was the hardest thing to yes. overcome. But on this show, you know, since it was pre-pandemic, uh, you know, you were talking about the playbacks. Uh 
in the in the the old normal world, you know, it still was a lot of playbacks for for three days because, like I said, we would do our own playback with the editors at the middle to the end of the second day. Then we would do a Jason playback somewhere in the middle of the third day. Sometimes we would just hold episodes and play back two episodes for him mm-hmm. in a day. Um, but so you would kind of steal a little bit from every show so you could do multiple playbacks for him. But then that would be two hours of playbacks for him for two episodes and then two hours of playbacks for Netflix and those people. So you're spending out of three days, maybe a day and a half at the most mixing and a you know day and a half of really just playing back and doing fixes. So it's an amazing amount of material to go through in such a short amount of time um, to get it on the screen. The This new world, we're hoping that because it is a little more cumbersome, they'll give us a little more time to mix so that we can present more and have a little more time to go through these things so you don't have to sit there while we're kind of watching the paint dry. They can trust us that, hey, we're getting on the screen and we can really focus on the notes that you need to do. That's that's a big difference. You mentioned you mentioned doing playbacks for Netflix. I'm curious, is there a difference, Larry, for you mixing for a streaming platform versus mixing for episodic for, for just broadcast? You know, we basically have kind of the same constraints in terms of uh, metering and, and whatnot. Obviously, there's more language and nudity and other kind of standards. But audio-wise, I, I try to follow the same pattern so that you're not remixing at home with a remote control. And we're really staying to that uh, spec. I'm not, you know, babysitting the meter. I can just tell by sound pressure level in the room, like, where we need to be and it's sitting in the pocket. Uh, but we know that the audience is usually seeing all of these more together in a string as opposed to one a week. So we're really extra careful in making sure that we're super consistent with um, presets that we would use, you know, reverb presets, things like that. And I'm consistent with how I'm treating the dialogue uh, so that it does play smoothly uh, if you're binging it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned cicadas once, and I wanted to ask you, um, the, the show is obviously set in the Ozarks region of Missouri, but they shoot it in Georgia, I presume because of for uh, tax uh, for tax reasons, yes. Um, but those 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 places don't necessarily sound alike. What uh, how, what what hoops do you have to jump through? <laughs> uh, I mean, thankfully, Nick and his crew have provided us with uh, excellent sounding, realistic cicadas, literally recorded from Missouri. So that sometimes is a cover. Uh, but I do work hard to, as I said, keep the dialogue sounding natural um, and embrace. If the cicadas are so pervasive that I can't remove them and only lessen, we, we embrace them. We, we understand, okay, we're outside. It's justifiable that they're there, but I can lessen them. I can use notch filtering and really get in there and get the obnoxious part of the cricket. So maybe you're left with, or the cicada, so you're left with a light chirp or not even really a chirp, more of like a as opposed to the, you know, which is digging into the dialogue like a knife. So my job is really to kind of lessen it. And I find that that's more natural and organic sounding than eliminating it. Yeah, season one, we actually did go out to the Ozarks and record a bunch of ambiences. And it's ironic because the show's shifted a lot. We're not outside as much as we were before. <laughs> so that's changed a little bit. But, uh, we did go out and get like, you know, recordings from the, or from the lake. We went out and got recordings from, you know, the forest and things like that. So we had a lot of natural Orza, Ozark sounding, uh, effects to start. Uh, but I think a good example of, you know, embracing it was it actually in episode one where, uh, we're in the bathroom scene with the cicadas with Marty finally confronting the Langmores for the first time. And Cindy Mollo, who was the editor on that, she's like, you know, I don't think we can get rid of this. I don't think we can loop this whole scene. I've tried to cut it in a way where we using the cicadas more as a tension device 
in the way it was shot. And so instead of eliminating it, we actually added to it and tried to, you know, use the cicadas as almost like score. in that scene. Yeah. Almost like score. Yeah. yeah. So sometimes, you know, as she always says, the, the defect becomes the effect. Love that expression. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, and in that scene was a perfect example that you just, you just, you, you take it, you embrace it and you, you make it part of your world and whether it's, it fits or not. So that was, and it worked well. I, I agree. And I always try to leave myself a little bit of wiggle room in terms of what I'm able to take out so that when someone says, can you take this further? I, I don't want to, you know, out of the first shot out of the box, killing it with a bazooka. You know what I'm saying? It's like the ant will die, but there'll be a lot of collateral damage. So it's just, you know, a spritz of raid. Uh, <laughs> and that's why I've always loved working with Larry is that he's very uh, cautious of that. You know, there's reduction. He knows it's a very powerful tool and can do a lot of things. But, you know, like you said, if you, if you, because you, you're always going to get this question on the stage. Is that as far as we can go with that? Can we remove that a little bit more? And if you've gone as far as you think you can, then you have nowhere else to go. So it's better to let the smooth it out more and be conservative with noise reduction. And then if you do have to go a little further, you can go a little further without really taking it over the top. And I think some guys, you know, they're, they don't want any noise in their tracks. And, and it's then, not sterile and, and has no life. You know, I'd rather use... EQ and levels and whatnot to try to get things more balanced uh, and then really reserve that for the, the worst cases. Without a doubt. And I think that makes a big difference because the tracks then sound much, you know, uh, more natural and, and organic to what, what you're dealing with. So it's a, a big difference, I think. Well, guys, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a real great pleasure to talk with you both about Ozark. Uh, the work on the show is just fantastic. And, you know, obviously I'm really excited to see what is going to happen to these characters in season four because, gosh. <laughs> Us too. Us too. Exactly. It's definitely unpredictable. That's for sure. Thank you, Glenn, uh, well, for having us. Yeah. Larry, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thanks, Glenn. We appreciate it. Absolutely. So this is Glenn Kaiser signing off from the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. Please join us again next week when we talk uh, with the team behind the another Netflix show, Lock and Key. Until then, signing off. Thanks for tuning in.